Hello, welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we pick up where we left off last week with part two of the Winnie Ruth Judd story. We'll talk about Ruthie on the run in L.A., a horrifying miscarriage of justice slash insane old-timey trial, and Ruth Judd's version of events the night she murdered her two best friends from beginning to end. Oh, my God. I wasn't even sure if she really murdered them or not. Anyways, I guess we'll get into it. <sighs> um, also, just by the way, our downstairs neighbor is playing music really loud. So if you hear some uh, music, you know, in the background, just don't be mad at me. We're living you know? in the city, man. Yeah. Okay. All right. And yes, this is part two. Part three is coming out next week. But if you want immediate access to the conclusion of this story and a whole treasure chest of exclusive Muriel's Murders episodes, please sign up at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. For five bucks a month, you get the goods and you get the feel goods. Uh, you know, that <laughs> sensation of supporting a couple of DIY podcasters who record in their living room and have to contend with music coming from below. You know, we have a link in our show notes for this episode for patreon we also have a link if you want to buy any murals murders t-shirts or a zero carbon crypto optional nft of art by yours truly all sales directly support our podcasting efforts all right okay guys this is a story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things please just listen to a different podcast. And we're probably going to joke and curse. So if those things are upsetting, turn us off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. Okay, I'm really excited. This is my favorite part of any multi-part uh series that we do on this uh -huh. podcast this is nick Casolini's recap of last week's episode okay take it away here it is it's 1931 we're two years into the great depression and tuberculosis sucks for many 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 people <laughs> including our three main characters our story so far has mostly taken place in phoenix arizona where there where we have um <laughs> something going on where our three main characters live and our best friends Okay, there are three young women named Anne, Sammy, and Ruthie. Ruthie grew up extremely religious, sheltered, and poor. Times are tough for these three young ladies, but they're sticking together and doing a good job of taking care of each other. Nice. Nick. That is until Ruthie starts acting really shady and attempts to travel with two heavy trunks to Los Angeles, where she eventually does land. So she gets herself to Los Angeles, and police discover that inside the trunk are the bodies of Anne and the chopped up dismembered body of Sammy. 
Ruthie, last seen with her L.A.-based brother, is missing, not yet in custody of police. Ruthie has also been married to an unemployable, drug-addicted doctor of a husband who we believe is in Los Angeles, and she has a secret boyfriend named Happy Jack back in Phoenix. Happy Jack is a successful businessman, respected community leader, and married man who is known to have partied many times with the three girls. Obviously, my spidey senses tell me that he's involved in the murder of Ann and Sammy. Muriel, in her intro, said that Ruthie was the one that actually murdered them. I assumed it was Happy Jack and that Ruthie just helped dispose of the bodies. I don't know. So that's what I got. It's really good. You I did a know. good job. Obviously, I did. I'm okay. a professional, and I bring the heat. Okay. <laughs> I also feel like my mouth is just filled with saliva. It's <laughs> because you're you're chomping at the bit to hear more murders. All right. Okay. So we're going to start this episode mm-hmm. with some stinky corpse-filled trunks in the Los Angeles Central train station. Mm-hmm. It's around 5 p.m. and the LAPD has opened two trunks belonging to Winnie Ruth Judd, registered under her brother B.J. McKinnell's name, mm-hmm. finding the bloody corpses of Ruth's two closest friends. A few hours later, police found the luggage stashed behind the door of the ladies' restroom at the train station. The old suitcase had the missing part of Sammy's torso and thighs, but no organs, and the hat box contained surgical instruments, 25 caliber pistol, a box of bullets, and some cosmetics. Oh my God. Wait, no organs? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's important to basically say, too, that... Uh, they all work in like a medical facility. Yes. They're all like doctor secretaries and yes, stuff. Exactly. exactly. But all right. Happy Jack is not a uh, doctor though. No, he's he a lumberman. Like in the business sense of it. He's yeah. not like a lumberjack. No, he's not a lumberjack. Right. Okay. I'm so just saying he's not. I a res- get what you're okay. saying. Okay. okay. Thank you. You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay, good. By this time, Ruth's brother, B.J. McKinnell, was Mm -hmm. somewhere in Los Angeles handing his sister a $5 bill and releasing her alone into the city. Hmm. By Tuesday, that's the day after Ruth basically came with the bodies to Los Angeles, right to Los Angeles. By Tuesday, police launched the biggest manhunt in history up until that point. Uh, in the entire west of the country Uh in their search for Ruth Judd. They interrogated Ruth's brother and older husband, Dr. Judd, but BJ and the doctor were immediately ruled out as suspects. Mm -hmm. They had sound alibis. They ran around detaining wayfish blondes for identification lineups, but (laughs) Uh they came up with nothing. Uh And police were baffled. First off, Police felt there was no way a 110-pound woman like Ruthie could have moved and dismembered the corpses by herself. Mm -hmm. So they were convinced she had an accomplice. But why Los Angeles? Mm -hmm. And where was the dude who helped her? Also, the whole thing was so dumb. Why didn't Ruth just dump the bodies in the thousands of miles of uninhabited desert surrounding (laughs) Phoenix that was literally packed with coyotes and buzzards? Uh Why on earth would she bring two bloody trunks with her to Los Angeles? Right. Now, police in the beginning of the investigation kept hinting that they had clues as to who the mystery guy was, right? Mm -hmm. But about four days into the investigation, they totally 
change tracks, right? Police abandoned the accomplice theory and said information has come to light that tells them that it was 100% Ruthie. So they tell the the public, uh-huh. Ruthie had no accomplices whatsoever. Have they made public the way she actually killed them? It's all over the papers. So uh-huh. what they're saying in the papers, because mm-hmm. it's 1930, is like, mm-hmm. rageful lioness claws to death her romantic rivals. Uh-huh. You know, hacks them. So they see she hacked both bodies into tiny little pieces. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. are saying all of this stuff. Yeah. But... Um, There's no official report yet? Like, did she poison them first or anything like that? No. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, Ruth is hiding out undetected in a Los Angeles sanatorium because Monday night you know she had been released out into the city Mm -hmm. and she was wandering around the city and she ended up going to the Lavinia sanatorium where she had her tuberculosis treated a couple times while she was living in Mexico right so if we remember Mm -hmm. from the last episode in Mexico she was with her husband while he worked at these different mines in Mm -hmm. this Mexican town and Basically, what ended up happening is her tuberculosis kept flaring up, and she had to be sent away to recover in, on bed rest in Los Angeles. What, which was incredibly common. So there was these like TB rehab centers, more or less. Yeah, right. Everywhere where you could go and feel better. Right. So she had actually stayed at the Lavinia Sanitarium like tw- two times. Uh huh. So she just walked in. She tried a couple of doors. She tried first to get into the room that she usually is in and that door was locked tried another door that door was locked tried a third door it was unoccupied so Mm -hmm. she just walked in laid down on the bed and she slept for four days wow and no one she didn't have to tell anyone she was there yeah and weirdly enough nobody ever found her they just thought it was an empty room (laughs) so she woke up on thursday Mm -hmm. she brushed her hair she went to the dresser and tore some paper off of the bottom of a dresser drawer so she could write a letter later. Mm-hmm. And then she just walked out. And at this point, she doesn't know that the police found the dead bodies. I mean, probably she she's know. assuming yeah. that they have because they were asking her, Questions. what's up with all this blood coming out? And she was like, I don't know. And they're like, well, where's the key? And she was like, my husband has it. I'm going to go get it. I'll be right back. Yeah. She disappears. They open the trunk, find the body. But she doesn't actually know any of that yet. Right, right. So she's walking blind out into the world. She walks by the reception desk. No one says a word to her. (laughs) Yeah. And then she goes out into the world. Eventually, she wanders down to the Broadway department store where she worked briefly at one point while she was staying in one of these sanitariums. Mm -hmm. And she says, quote, I stood around staring at people I knew or who knew me. I was in such a stupor that I got locked in the store all night. I slept in the furniture department of that store under a rug. Whoa. So that's where she spent Thursday night. And people just saw right. They just didn't see her. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like she was saying, like, they just didn't recognize her. Right. You know, so she was walking around this department store with all these people she used to work with. And people just didn't recognize her. And she was just like, And other people can attest to that? Nobody saw her. 
no one is like, oh yeah, I saw Ruthie. No, nobody talked to her. That's so interesting. I mean, to me, I just see like one of two things happening. One is she really is in this, like, I haven't slept in many days and I'm losing my mind and I'm just sort of like out of it. And I really did sleep in this thing for four days. And then I went to this thing, was out in the public and just no one recognized me. And then I just slept in the little folding chair of the stupid Mm -hmm. department store. And ooh, I didn't know what was going on. Or B, her ass was hiding and she knew what she was doing. And she was like, Oh, I'm so innocent, but really her ass was hiding. A hundred percent. Okay. So just could be one or two. Yeah, right. Okay. So there in the Broadway department store is where she wrote on that paper she tore off the back of the um dresser drawer. Uh-huh. She wrote what is called the drain pipe letter. The dream pipe? The drain pipe. Drain. Oh, that's letter. such a more murderousy sounding name. That sounds like a thing you would use to beat someone to death. Okay. So okay. she writes the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, she does end up tearing it up and stuffing it, flushing it down the toilet okay. while she's in the department store at night. Mm-hmm. So the next morning, she wakes up, still nobody notices her. And then she sees in the paper that someone has, they're all talking about mm-hmm. it, that her husband, Dr. Judd, had posted a phone number in the paper. And a plea begging Ruth to call him. Mm-hmm. So Ruth goes, she finds a phone, and she calls her husband. Remember, they lived in Mexico for a long time, so they yeah. speak together in Spanish. So people can't understand what they're saying. Ooh. And he arranges to meet Ruth around the backside of the Biltmore Theater. He says, meet me back there. I'll pick mm-hmm. you up. So she finds her way to the Biltmore Theater. She meets her husband behind the parking garage. And from there, the doctor drives Ruth to a local funeral parlor. And there is when she turned herself into police. Mm -hmm. So she gave herself up on a Friday. And when they found her, she looked like she had been through the ringer. She was Uh dirty. Mm -hmm. She was hysterical, like not making any sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she hadn't eaten in days. Yeah. An attorney originally hired by Judd, who did not go to the trial. With the the doctor or her? The doctor. Sorry. Okay. The attorney hired by Dr. Judd. He uh-huh. did not go to the trial, but he was their very first attorney. Mm-hmm. He released the following statement. Quote, this is what he says is on Ruth's behalf. Okay. Quote, I had gone to the girl's home to remonstrate with Miss Samuelson for some nasty things she had said about Miss Leroy. Miss Samuelson got a hold of a gun and shot me in the left hand. I struggled with her and the gun fell. Miss Leroy grabbed an ironing board and started to strike me over the head with it. In the struggle, I got hold of the gun and Sammy got shot. Miss mm-hmm. Leroy was coming at me with the ironing board and I had to shoot her. Then I ran from the place, unquote. And under the towel she had wrapped around her hand for the past week yeah. was a gangrenous bullet wound. Okay. All right. So her story is they attacked me. They had a gun. I got the gun away from them. I was able to kill them both. In the original statement. Okay. So they take her. They see she's really ill. So Mm -hmm. she's in a jail cell being held. But they take her out of the jail cell. They take her to the hospital. They treat her hand. And while they're treating their hand, doctors found she had bruises all over her body. She had 147 bruises in total. Whoa. So that's consistent with a knockdown, drag out fight. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. And also being brained with an ironing board. Yeah. Like, you know. Totally. She's in terrible shape. Yeah. So back in Phoenix, police 
we're doing an awesome job of fucking up the crime scene. So, police first first enters the girl's apartment on Monday the 19th after their bodies were discovered in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. From the very beginning Mm -hmm. of opening the door to the duplex, police let at least half a dozen members of the press into the duplex before remotely securing the scene or searching for any fingerprints. Oh my God. The plan was just to yell at people when they touched things until the fingerprint man showed up. (laughs) The fingerprint man showed up two hours later. So that place was swarmed with cops and reporters and all kinds of people. Right. Uh, People looking around, neighbors. And you did make a big point of saying this is actually a small one-bedroom apartment. It's tiny. Yeah. (sighs) On Tuesday the 19th, the landlord of the duplex went to police. Mm -hmm. And he says, listen, guys, my property is being destroyed by looky-loos in the press. I need you to send a cop over here to secure the property. Mm -hmm. And they say... Yeah, yeah, dude. We've got more bigger fish to fry. We're not worried about your property. <laughs> so the landlord uh-huh. decides, if I can't get the police to help me, I'm at least going to turn a buck on this. He puts out ads in the Arizona Republic in the Phoenix Evening Gazette announcing that he was offering guided tours of the crime scene for 10 cents a head. Oh, my God. See, here I am feeling sometimes like guilty about, you know, I don't know, telling stories of true crime or something. It's not like we make very much money off this podcast, but, (laughs) you know, but it's just like this guy's just exploiting it immediately. Well, there's a long history of people being like into murder. It's not like people out trying to act like this is a new thing. Right. I mean, it used to be that people were like, yeah, let's go down to the hanging. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is not a new thing. Of course. So So, of course that attracted people and they paid the 10 cents. During the next three weeks. Yeah. Thousands of people walked through the crime scene. And after all of that was finished, on November 13th, so remember, the murders happened on October 16th. So almost a month later. Almost a month later, the police finally got around to actually taking blood samples from the crime scene. Oh, shit. They hadn't actually gone through and done any forensic sampling except for the fingerprints. That was the only thing they checked. They hadn't done any work. They just didn't do it. So the samples that they pulled were virtually worthless at that point, but they did pull them. So Ruth, who is in L.A., Mm -hmm. they end up extraditing her back to Arizona Mm -hmm. for a trial, a murder trial. And her trial begins on January 19th. 1932 so about two months after Mm -hmm. the deaths of sammy and ann yeah so i'm going to start with a murder scene specific so this is the basic sort of like overview of what forensic evidence was gathered at the time okay so along with the bodies officials found spent 25 caliber bullets and a 10 inch serrated bread knife in the trunks Mm -hmm. sammy was shot three times once in the arm, once in the chest, and once in the head. A bullet had also passed through one of her fingers. Sammy's body was found in three sections. She was bisected at the waist, exactly the same way the Black Dahlia was. Mm. 
and again at the knees, which had been neatly disarticulated at the joint. So somebody had gone in and actually like taken apart the joint to remove the lower half of the leg. Oh my God. Sammy had been surgically dismembered so carefully that the coroner was easily able to stitch her body back together in one piece. So this is not the hack job of a person wildly trying to shove someone into a smaller trunk. Right. It's all been like done mm. by somebody who has to know something about anatomy. Mm. Anne had been shot once at close range in the head. So she had been shot from the back of her head mm-hmm. downwards toward the front of her head mm-hmm. with the barrel pressed against her. <sighs> Anne was stuffed in the larger trunk along with Sammy's lower legs. And then the trunks were filled with Anne and Sammy's personal stuff, letters, books, and photographs. Now, you had said earlier, like, why yeah. are these trunks so heavy? Yeah, yeah. It's because they were, lo- like, layering books and things like that on top of the body. Mm-hmm. So if you open the trunk, you just see books and things like that. Yeah. The girls had been killed. It was estimated around 1030 on Friday night, just about an hour, hour and a half after Ruthie got there. So yeah. by the time we left them having a chat around the card table, yeah. that was around the time the murders happened. I have so many questions. Originally, the bodies were stuffed in the same large trunk before mm-hmm. rigor mortis set in mm-hmm. and before their blood had actually coagulated. So it had to have been within six hours of the murder of the two bodies were put into the trunk. They were moved to two separate trunks as well as the large suitcase later that weekend. So they know that the bodies were originally in the one big trunk mm-hmm. and they were moved. Sammy's dismemberment made her case more complicated to to charge. Yeah. So Ruth was only charged with the murder of Anne. And they figured if, you know, she's guilty of the murder of Anne, then that kind of solves the case. They just chose the easiest of the two things to prove. Mm -hmm. I guess you could do that. Yes. So the state's theory was this. The prosecution argued that Judd acted alone and with premeditation. They said the relationship between the girls had Mm -hmm. broken down after Ruth had moved out of the duplex Mm -hmm. and that a large part of that was because all the ladies wanted tall, handsome, happy Jack Halloran to themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were jealous. And when the women had an argument over happy Jack that Friday night, Ruth murdered them in a jealous rampage. She then shot herself in the hand so she could claim self-defense. Yes. So prosecutors lay this out for what happened that night. Mm-hmm. They say, after planning the murder for weeks, Ruth came over to the duplex around 9.30 after being stood up by Jack. She waited until Sammy and Anne were lying asleep in bed, so mm-hmm. they were totally out. She then got a pistol and shot Anne first in the head, point blank, with a twenty-five caliber pistol. Mm-hmm. That wakes Sammy up. So she's woke Sammy up in the process. They say Sammy then sat up, tried to defend herself, which is why she was shot multiple times, the first being a defensive wound on her hand. Right. So this is the defense's theory, right? I'm just kind of going to sum them up for you. Yeah. The defense's theory was, despite Ruth's version of events Mm -hmm. in her earlier release to the press, Mm -hmm. the defense went with a, quote, she killed the girls because she went temporarily insane. Okay. 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 I don't know why I put quotes around that. I said that. So okay. I quoted myself. All right. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they go with 
insan the insanity defense, despite the fact that Ruth is saying over and over again in the beginning of this thing, hey, this was self-defense. I have three questions off the bat. Can Hold I on, ask them? Okay. Really they didn't mention self-defense at all. Mm-hmm. And Ruth was never allowed to take the stand in her defense. Mm-hmm. So throughout the trial, the jury never heard her version of events from that night. Instead, the defense called psychiatrists to stand to the stand to testify that either her tuberculosis made her insane or alternatively she might be schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. And they also had her parents testify that she was obsessed with babies at a chi- as a child and she was kind of weird and she had her husband the doctor tell his story about her trying to name their miscarried pregnancies after Napoleon. Yeah, right. right. And pretending like the baby was alive after the miscarriages and stuff. Exactly. So those are the two like Mm -hmm. basic positions. Now go ahead. What were we going to say? Could they track the ownership of the gun? We'll get to that. Was there any witnesses that heard gunshots in the house that night? Yes. I'm not going to cover all of that because some Uh of it just is going to, yes. I will say this. Uh Uh-huh her neighbors are worthless. They're like, well, I heard some screaming and gunshots and then some screaming and more screaming and gunshots. Like, they're just, you <laughs> okay. know, nobody helped them at all. Is all the bruising brought up at all at this point in the no. trial? Okay. So, we're going to do this thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Because I'm a podcaster and I'm trying my best. <laughs> and I'm not a legal expert. Yes. So I'm not going to pretend I am. I like to read stories and then tell you about them. Yes. So we're going to talk about the trial, but in kind of a like quick and dirty way. Good. Okay. I so like So we're not going to go through the whole ins and outs. So the trial is really interesting uh-huh. and there's a lot of stuff that comes up, but I'm going to skip some of the stuff and just talk about some major points in the trial. Great. That's okay. I love it. But actually, I, I actually have even more questions, but I'll just ask one more right now. Okay. Is there any validity to the story that they hadn't been getting along lately? Well, they definitely... Uh, she definitely moved out of the house. Moved out of the house. And then there's another thing we'll talk about uh-huh. later that showed that they had like a moment of conflict the Thursday night before they were killed. Mm-hmm. But... Okay. So there's maybe some little disagreements going on. There's something going on, but they're yeah. not. Uh, they're, we'll talk about that. Okay, later. great. Yeah. Okay. So just to kind of start this conversation off, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there were a lot of issues with this trial, like a million issues. Okay. <laughs> that like his, like historians who study this case mm-hmm. later went back and said, you know, they don't believe she had a fair trial. It was uh-huh. kind of crazy, da, 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 whatever. Okay. So this is all according to the book that we read, The Trunk Murderess, which is awesome. It's very interesting. Good. Um, but the idea is many, many people who've looked at this trial have said that there are issues with this trial. Mm-hmm. Now that you know the basic gist of the prosecution and the defense arguments, mm-hmm. I'm going to lay a little bit of knowledge on you just for context. Great. School me. Okay, there's this thing in trials called discovery, the discovery phase. Do you know what that means? No. Okay, so in modern criminal trials, it's basically a period in which both the defense and the prosecution swap copies of all the evidence they've gathered, Mm -hmm. right? So whatever I've gathered, I have to share with you. Whatever you gathered, you have to share with me. That's the discovery process. This happens before the trial. Yes, okay, that makes sense. Now, the federal rules governing discovery 
weren't put until into place mm-hmm. until 1938. So in 1932, when this case was tried, the prosecution didn't have to tell the defense anything. Mm. So the defense went in basically blind. Right. While the prosecution went into the trial with all of the evidence that the uh, police officials, all of the investigators had put together. So they took all of the information from the police and they got to use it. And the defense didn't hear about any of that information until the trial actually started. That seems like it's in direct contradiction to this idea that the burden of proof is on the prosecution. Yeah. Right? It's it's not it's not a great look. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. So yeah, yeah. but that's something to just keep in mind mm-hmm. is that like I mean, there's no way <laughs> essentially like the defense couldn't really come up with a strategy to combat any of the evidence that right. came to trial, right? Yeah, yeah. Because they were just hearing it as the jury was hearing it. Yeah, so for them, it, it's like, wow, this really is the discovery phase. Right, All right. What right. are we doing which, here? Which might have been part of the reason why they chose insanity as the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't... Yeah. Like I said, this is all just bullshit. I, get, I'm like, I, I read though. this book. I'm going to tell you what I hear. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. tell me about, you know, whatever. I tried yeah, my best. I read some some terms. But this is the, the very general overview. Of the we trial. got you. Okay, great. So most of the evidence gathered by police in Ruth's case, like we said, either wasn't shared with her defense team, so they couldn't prepare for it, or was simply left out of the trial. Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing. The defense didn't know what was going on, so they can't tell what the prosecution is just not saying. Yeah. So the prosecution had evidence that contradicted the evidence they presented, right. presented at trial. Right. They just didn't say it. Right. And the defense didn't know it existed. Well, they could probably could be on the defense to go get oh no but the police are for the state so they can deny the defense access to their evidence i mean i think it's hard to ask for things that you don't know exist you know Uh uh-huh because they're like why how you'd be like well what happened i mean the better Mm -hmm. her defense team was not that good Okay. Yeah, <laughs> they could have. Got, I just feel like they could have gone down to the police station. Be like, hey, by the way, what do you what 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 evidence do you have? It you honestly, know? that's why I'm like not. I could probably like really break down to you why that was so stupid. Yeah, but yeah. I think that would take like two hours. Okay. Okay. Fast I mean, forward. I think fast the, forward. The right. trial's like eight chapters long, so I'm not okay. gonna go. I'm just yeah. keeping it Nick friendly. Okay. Thank you. Because this is for you, sweet one. Oh my god. Okay. And all of us remember, mm-hmm. doesn't even take into account the idea that the crime scene was horribly tainted from the start. Right, right. From all the tours and whatever. <laughs> yeah. So here's a few examples of how some of that evidence that that existed mm-hmm. would have contradicted the prosecution's theory if it had been brought up to trial. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the prosecution, part of their theory is that the women were shot in bed. Right? Mm -hmm. So the girls slept in this tiny ass sleeping porch that was only big enough to fit two twin beds. Mm -hmm. They have a tiny narrow walkway between these two twin beds. But the only blood found by investigators in the bedroom was pooled under Anne's bed and pooled in the corner of the room. Mm -hmm. There was no blood spatter on the wall. Mm -hmm. There was no blood on the headboard. Nothing. And there was no blood at all found on Sammy's side of the room. None. So if Sammy and Anne were shot in bed, Sammy, multiple times, the small bedroom should have been absolutely soaked in blood. Right. 
but there was no blood on the okay. walls. Not in the same way. Also, mm-hmm. both mattresses for the girl's bed were just straight up gone. So the prosecution didn't tell the defense that. Oh, whoa. They just, they didn't tell the, anyone that. They gone as in it. like no. uh, maybe Ruthie or whoever was in there like burned the mattresses or whatever? They're just gone. Okay. Somehow <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the middle of the night, mm-hmm. apparently Ruth, who didn't own a car, uh-huh. disappeared the mattresses. Okay. Whatever, right? right? Investigators didn't even attempt to solve that mystery or answer that question. Actually, during the investigation, a mattress believed to have been from the duplex was actually found a few miles away in an empty lot. But investigators who checked it out wrote that mattress off mm-hmm. because it didn't have bullet holes or blood on it <laughs> almost as if no one was killed on it <laughs> yeah, okay right but yeah, they don't bring you. that up at trial i get you okay. and the defense didn't know about it okay <laughs> also there was a superficial stab on sammy's neck that no one talked about mm-hmm. but could have potentially supported a fight in a kitchen right, right? Mm-hmm. jana Bomersbach, the author of our book she wrote quote in fact, the judge was very forgiving of the mistakes made by police officers and investigators. Every single objection raised by the defense attorneys about the tainted physical evidence, and they objected to virtually everything, was overruled. Mm. So the judge just overruled I get it. any yeah. question about tainted evidence. Right. Okay, so in terms of premeditation, you know, you'd have to... To prove premeditation, you have to know Ruth acquired the gun, brought it with her, and shot it. And they could run tests on her skin to determine whether or not she was the one who fired the gun. Mm-hmm. They could have absolutely done that. They didn't do shit. No <laughs> testing at all. Yeah. Not even to determine what kind of gun was used. And huh. they didn't know where the gun came from. Yeah. Basically, you know, like they found these exploded and unexploded bullets thrown into the death truck like along with a box of bullets but they were never like ruth brought the bullets like bought the bullets on whatever day Uh the box contained 20 bullets five were spent from the gun the death trunk contained two cases and a box containing 15 bullets right they were literally like yeah we found a bunch of bullets and stuff in her truck. like (laughs) there was no testing to see like could they even tell it was the same gun that that's a theory that kind of comes up later that we'll uh-huh. talk about. They yeah. have the 25 caliber gun and yeah. they know that the 25 caliber gun killed Sammy. Uh huh. But in the very beginning of the investigation, there were a lot of news reports saying the coroner's office found that Anne was shot with a 32 caliber gun. Now, on the coroner's mm-hmm. report and mm-hmm. any other investigative like piece of written material from the investigation, yeah. there's no reference to the caliber of bullet. Mm. So they don't say what caliber of bullet killed the women. We got a real mystery on our hands. They don't say that. They just say, oh, we found this gun. We found yeah. these bullets. And they're not even tracking to see how many bullets were like even used out of the box or why right. did, no, no proof whatsoever that Ruth even bought those things. Right. Also in terms of premeditation, Ruth had plans to buy a big house where her friends could live with her and her parents, right? Mm -hmm. And they were working 
with a realtor and they were going to go see the house the next day. Yeah. And that plan was going to benefit Ruth and her parents because they would pay a lower mortgage. The girls lived with them. Right. So like there was a huge incentive to like have the girls move into the house. Yeah. Right. Also, Ruth had spent her entire paycheck on groceries and rent on Thursday, the day before the killing. Uh-huh. She had two dollars to her name before supposedly planning an interstate murder bonanza with no car and no help. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, <laughs> no funds to get a taxi to the station or right. a hotel to hide out in or whatever. And I'm going to bring the bodies with me. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. So now we get to the question of help. Mm-hmm. Jack Holleran, Happy Jack, drove a gray Packard. And during the investigation with police, several witnesses came forward to say Jack's gray Packard was parked outside of Ann and Sammy's apartment for hours on Saturday mm-hmm. while Ruth was at work. Mm-hmm. That didn't get included in the trial at all. Any mention of his black pa- or his gray Packard Weird. was never, never brought up at trial. Uh-huh. Okay, so now we're going to get to the drain pipe letter. When Ruth was hiding out in the Broadway department store, she wrote this letter, right? Tore it up and flushed down the toilet. Now, investigators in L.A. had a plumber fish the drains, and he came up with the shredded pieces of the letter, and they were able to piece the entire letter back together. Huh. The prosecution yeah. had that. Uh-huh. Guess what the defense had? Nothing. Right. <laughs> now, the drain pipe letter in its entirety, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but you uh-huh. just have to trust me. I will. It bolsters... <laughs> That would be so funny if at this point I was like, you know what, Muriel? I think you've been lying lying. to me. This whole podcast and all these episodes we've done. I've been making them up. (laughs) So basically, the drain pipe letter Mm -hmm. is a full confession Mm -hmm. that completely bolsters Ruth's claims of self-defense. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's like a page long. It details all the circumstances around the murder, what she says happened play by play, why it happened, Mm -hmm. what happened the day before, what happened afterwards. She just writes the entire thing down. Now, what the prosecution did is they went through the letter and they just used snippets of it as an affirmation that Ruth killed the women on purpose. Those dicks, like man. A, like a confession. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. like I said, the defense didn't have a letter and the prosecution presented these quotes at trial. Like, things like this quote. So maybe not these exact quotes, I but this is how they yeah. used it. So, like, I went through the letter and pulled out all the incriminating stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, I fired twice, I think. Mm-hmm. Quote, I got the gun and killed her. Mm-hmm. It was horrible to pack the things as I did. I kept saying, I've got to, I've got to, or I'll be hung. I've got to, or I'll be hung. Quote, mm-hmm. I'm wild, cold, hunger, pain, and fear now, Dr. Darling. Quote, forgive me, forget me. And, quote, the police will hang me. So those are the types of quotes that they use. Right. But they missed all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, know, right. right. It reminds me of uh, my favorite movie, My Cousin Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the two Italian kids are driving through the South. It's the best movie ever. I love this movie with all my heart. And they basically accidentally steal this can of tuna from this convenience store. Uh-huh. They like just forget to pay for it because their hands are so full. So they're driving and then they get pulled over by the cops and the cops like pull, jump out with guns. It's like, oh my God, what's happening? And they're getting dragged into this police station being dealt with like really roughly. And they're like, this is all for stealing this can of tuna. Like what's going on? And then like way deep into the interrogation, the cops is like so when did you do it when did you shoot the clerk and the italian little <laughs> ralph whatever from uh from karate kids like the clerk he's like i shot the clerk 
Oh, and then they I shot that. the clerk. And then later in the courtroom, the cops like, then he said, quote, I shot the clerk. Yeah. I shot the clerk without any of the good New York Italian intonation. Right. That made it clearly a question. I love my cousin Vinny. Thank you for that. All right. <laughs> Everyone is welcome. <laughs> so anyway, I'm not going to go through the ins and outs of the trial because yeah. it's a, it's complicated and I'm not going to explain it. But that's like yeah. highlights of things of evidence that wasn't used mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. kind of the dirty tricks that they used in the trial to get their verdict. Right? Which was guilty. So... Because Ruth's lawyers chose to go with an insanity defense, the trial kind of came down to the judge instructing the jury to convict Ruth based on whether or not she knew right from wrong Mm -hmm. at the time of the murders. Now, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, had called psychiatrists to the stand to testify for and against Ruth's sanity, right? Mm -hmm. So in the jury's, from the jury's perspective, that's kind of a wash. You know, they don't know a lot about psychiatry. And these two (laughs) people are basically saying conflicting things. So no one was more convincing than the other during the trial. Mm -hmm. Plus, what they do know is that she obviously elaborately tried to hide the bodies. Yeah. Right? Right. So jurors were like, well, that's like a clear indication that she knew what she did was wrong. Yeah. You know? So on February 8th, 1932, it took four hours, which included a dinner break, for the jury to find Ruth guilty of murdering Anne and sentencing her to death by hanging. (sighs) She screamed, those girls weren't murdered at the judge, Mm -hmm. who almost broke his gavel while he was trying to restore (laughs) order. And she said, quote, you're trying to hang me and I won't have it before her husband struck her across the face to quiet her and then held her in his arms. Oh, my God. (sighs) Okay. (sighs) R.I.P. Anne and R.I.P. Sammy, just real quick. I feel like they have, I have this weird thing about Ruth being innocent. Probably she was obviously involved and guilty of something. I don't think. I I want the truth to set her free, but also R.I.P. Anne and Sammy. It's yes. so incredibly tragic and sad. They were so good to each other, too. I know. I uh, know. Okay. Okay, so the verdict is read. Mm-hmm. Ruth is imprisoned, and she's waiting for her hanging that mm-hmm. year, right? So mm-hmm. she's waiting for her death date. Now, months later, after the trial, four jurors from her trial came forward with a confession. They said there was one man on the jury a shady-ass former mayor mm-hmm. and a buddy of Happy Jack's mm. who swayed the entire jury into seeking the death penalty for Ruth. Wow. So this There's guy... There's an inside man trying to protect his freaking freak of nature, evil bozo friend, Happy Jack. <laughs> so this guy, uh-huh. Dan Kleinman, he was a cattle rancher. And he was also the former mayor of Mesa, Arizona. So even before he was selected for the jury, he was witnessed in a drugstore as saying, quote, this Judd woman is guilty as hell. And if I ever get on that jury, I will hang the bitch. Unquote. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, like, that's the type of stuff that should disqualify you from sure. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so Dan Kleinman was like this big, hefty, socially intimidating dude Mm -hmm. and 
you know, he he got on the jury, he read everything, and then everyone went back to deliberate. And he sits the guys down and he says, okay, listen, I have a really excellent and fair idea. All the jurors were really upset that Ruth didn't take the stand in her own defense. Mm -hmm. They felt like after the trial, they felt like you. They felt like the truth was out there somewhere and they hadn't heard it. Yeah. You know, and they felt like there was this like kind of energy of like wanting to punish her for just like not saying anything at her trial. Mm -hmm. Which is not supposed to be the case. It's supposed to be, you know, people have that right. That shouldn't be yeah, totally. a strike against you. Totally. But they were feeling like yeah. none of this adds up, whatever. But that mm-hmm. shouldn't be the case. You're right. Right. So Dan Kleiman says, you know, listen, dudes, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's told the, the truth at trial either. Like, this is so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I have a plan. He says, I think I can get her to tell her side of the story. Right. But she's a real flighty, screwy bird, right? Like she's kind of a hysterical lady. Mm -hmm. So I think the only way to get her to talk is to convict her of capital murder. You know, like really turn the screws on her. (laughs) And when when we do that, Uh I bet you she'll say what happened. And then we'll all finally know the truth. And he says, and I have these really influential friends on the parole board. (laughs) <laughs> so if we convict her of capital murder right. and then she tells everyone the truth, yeah. I can get my friends to commute her sentence. So we can use a backdoor <sighs> mm-hmm. way of getting her to talk without actually committing her to death. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, you know, I have the best way for you to get rich. You give me all of your money. Right, right, right. And then by giving me everything I want, you'll actually get what you want. Right, 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 right. So he says, you know, uh-huh. everyone will finally know what happened uh-huh. if we do this, and then we'll all ride in on a white horse and save her from hanging. So that's his, his plan. Well, that's what he says to that's these people. That's what he says to these people. Okay. And all the jurors say, oh man, well, he used to be the mayor. <laughs> So obviously he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert, he was a dirty liar. (laughs) Yeah. So that's why Mm -hmm. they, that's why these jurors say that's why the jury convicted her of capital murder. Right. And then so several months later, they're coming out and saying this. Right. Before she's been hung right and they're because they all sat around for months yeah. right yeah and the trial has gone by yeah. and there's not so much as a whisper regarding ruth's pardon there's yeah. nothing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in fact it really looked like the woman they sentenced to hang <laughs> was gonna was get gonna hung get hung right yeah. and around this time you know ruth starts getting a little more vocal she's furious with her defense team mm-hmm. you know she says Basically, she comes out and she says, my attorneys wouldn't let me plead self-defense or take the stand. Mm -hmm. And that I was acting in self-defense. Like this whole time, I would have said it, but they told me I couldn't say it. Yeah. And self-defense wasn't a slam dunk defense. Yeah. But it was a lot harder to disprove than whether or not she knew right from wrong. You know, it's like, yeah, right. You have to convict someone if you think they're guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right. It's a lot easier to have doubts about somebody who says it's self-defense totally than it is just like is she insane it's yeah like a black and white thing somebody who covered up the crime right you know did they know right from wrong it's like yeah they did know right from wrong at some point right? yeah totally that makes sense right yeah of course <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> so, you know, she starts fighting. Mm-hmm. After the verdict, she gets this fresh set of attorneys who filed appeals on her behalf. She mm-hmm. starts fighting the verdict. And she had thousands of supporters, including Henry Ford and Eleanor Roosevelt, who were writing letters on her behalf. Saying, oh, interesting. You know, like this this trial seems like bullshit, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I could see powerful people wanting to get involved because they're like all these like unhealthy precedents are being set. You yeah, know, it's, unsafe. It's so messy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ruth's new attorneys also instructed her not to say anything while her appeals were being filed when they uh-huh. tried to appeal her sentence. So okay. Ruth, despite the fact she's telling people in her inner circle, you know, what happened, she's uh-huh. telling her attorneys what uh-huh. happened. Even some of the jurors came to visit her at jail and she was telling them what happened. <laughs> really? Like she started to say like, uh-huh. you know, this is what she's starting to leak that stuff but they say don't say anything just let us file the appeals we can win this thing just based on technicality alone like uh-huh. we need you to talk about your self-defense let's keep it simple okay so they file the appeals and all her de- appeals are denied mm. after that seven days later less than two months before her hanging ruth decided to buck her attorneys and make a statement So on the afternoon of December 19th, 1932, a little over a year after the murders, Ruth sat down with the Maricopa County Sheriff, a deputy, a court reporter, and the prison warden, along with her now third set of attorneys, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to tell her story. So this is what she said during her four-hour deposition. (sighs) I'm going to paraphrase. Thank God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because it's a lot. But this is basically the order of events according to Ruth. Great. Ruth said a girl named Lucille came to the clinic to be treated for syphilis. And while she was at the clinic where Ruth worked, she mentioned to Ruth that she was going hunting in the White Mountains. Now, Ruth says Happy Jack and some of his friends were also going that weekend. Mm -hmm. So she arranged for Lucille to meet Jack. And this is a little muddy. It's like Ruth wanted to go with Jack hunting, Mm -hmm. but that's like obviously not going to fly with anyone. This woman going like his affair partner coming with him on this boys trip. Mm -hmm. So I think what Ruth was thinking, they say this in different places and then not in others, but the Mm -hmm. idea is possibly... If she introduces Lucille to Jack, then maybe Ruth can be Lucille's chaperone with the boys to go to White Mountains and go hunting. Like a pair of women is more uh-huh. um, like acceptable, uh, acceptable or than a single woman. Okay. So she's saying, okay, I'm going to introduce Lucille to Jack. Worst case scenario, Lucille can tell him different things about hunting and like where to hunt in the White Mountains because she knows how to do that. Uh-huh. And you know, best case scenario, Jack invites her along and then that gets Ruth an invitation. Okay. Right? You're making a confused face. I don't know. We're just back to, <laughs> it's just like, this story started with like um, hilarious gossip and this is sort of just back to that realm. So I'm just getting. But that, that is like the reason why she inter- she arranged it. It was okay. the hunting trip was the reason she introduced Lucille to, to Jack. Okay. It's important. So she says, hey, Lucille, why don't you come over to my house on Thursday? So this is the Thursday before the mm-hmm. murders, the 15th. Come over to my house and we'll have dinner with Jack, you, me, and Jack, and we'll talk about hunting in the White Mountains. On the Thursday before the murders, Happy Jack showed up to the clinic drunk, 
to pick up Ruthie. So he mm-hmm. goes to the, the clinic, picks up Ruthie, and then the two of them drove to pick up Lucille. And Jack had some weird shit going on. I don't really understand it, but he said two of his gentlemen friends were over at Sammy and Ann's duplex. Mm-hmm. So he said, I got the two girls, but he goes, hey, we can't go straight to your house for dinner. I have to pick up my friends who are hanging out with Sammy and Ann at their mm-hmm. duplex. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to pop inside and say hi, right? Okay. So Ruth did not want to go to the duplex. She had lied to Sammy and Ann about needing to finish some typing work that night. Mm. She told them she couldn't help entertain Jack Jack's friends. Mm-hmm. She had to go home and do some typing. So she had lied. In reality, she didn't want Sammy and Ann to know that she was having a dinner date with Lucille from the clinic mm-hmm. and Jack that same night. Ruth said she didn't want the girls to know she was introducing Jack to a new woman because she knew Jack was financially supporting Ann and Sammy Mm. and that they would be pissed about any new faces being entered into the equation. Yeah. With Ruth and Lucille loaded into his gray Packard and against Ruth's wishes, Jack drove over to Sammy and Ann's place anyway. Yeah. Upset, Ruth told Jack to promise not to tell the girls Ruth was waiting in the car outside. Jack, a true man of his word, immediately brought Sammy and Ann outside to the car. (laughs) At first, the girls were excited. They greeted Ruth with kisses and begged her and Jack to stay for dinner. But when they saw Lucille in the back with Ruth, they balked. The Mm. greeting turned cold and the girls went back inside. Okay, so what Ruthie feared came true right okay so jack you know loads his friends into the packard he drives over to their houses drops them off and then he takes the girls back to ruth's apartment to have dinner and drink Mm -hmm. and after that jack drove lucille home around midnight the next day Anne came over to ruth's a friday morning and the two had lunch together then Anne tagged along with ruth while ruth ran errands uh-huh. So people saw them walking around with their arms linked. So it wasn't like they were really fighting or anything. Oh, okay. You know, like Ruth paid some bills and her rent and that left her with just $2, right? Uh-huh. So that's like when she spent all of her money. Yeah. And, you know, they're hanging out and Anne tries to talk Ruth into coming over for dinner that night to have dinner in bridge. But Ruth said, you know, legit, I'm telling you the truth right now. I've been messing around all week. I have to finally get some. <laughs> yeah. I'm really bad at typing. Right. In reality, she had another date with Jack Lyman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that night, Friday, October 16th, Ruth gets dolled up and she waits for happy Jack, but he never shows up. Mm-hmm. By 9 p.m., Ruth is really pissed. So she didn't want to be there looking like a puppy when he decided to come by. So she takes a streetcar over to Ann and Sammy's place to spend the night. Ruth said she walked through the door around 9.30 and the girls were surprised to see her after she'd blown them off, but there was no issue with her coming by. Mm -hmm. Anne lent her some pajamas and fixed up the pullout bed in the living room for Ruth to sleep on. Mm -hmm. So according to Ruth, the women lounged around on the twin beds in the bedroom to chat before bed. And they talked about seeing the house the next day and some other small things. When Anne asks... How did Jack meet Lucille Moore, the girl in the car from the night before? And Ruth says, oh, you know, I introduced them together. And Anne is big mad. Mm -hmm. And she asks Ruth if she was insane. 
insane to have introduced Happy Jack to a girl with syphilis. Mm -hmm. Now, the girls all knew about Lucille's condition because she was a patient at the clinic where they worked. Yeah. And syphilis had this incredible stigma back then. It was mm -hmm. like the touch of death socially. There wasn't any cure and penicillin was a decade away. Mm -hmm. um, so allowed to run its course, the disease could like lead to all kinds of stuff like facial disfigurement, like your nose would collapse in. Yeah, and people would go insane and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Plus, you could only get it from having sex, yeah. which is the was the most unchristian, horrible, monstrous thing to do that everyone did but never admitted. <laughs> so, uh, oh, so the idea is like, how dare you introduce Jack to this unclean woman? Not like we're all clearly having sex with Jack, and now you introduce this syphilis into our circle. Well, I don't know. You know, anyway, the point is, is uh -huh. that a diagnosis or uh, of syphilis or collapsed nose was like a scarlet letter, right? Well, of course. So God, yeah, the collapsed nose is, is <laughs> that's pretty hard to hide, too. Now, Ruth said, you know, Anne, it's really unethical for you to talk about what happens inside the clinic. Mm -hmm. And Anne sh shoots back, you know, unethical. You introduced Jack to a woman with syphilis. Mm -hmm. And then Anne dropped a bombshell. She said she knew all about Ruth's extramarital affair with Happy Jack. Ruth shoots back that Anne wasn't the only one who knows secrets. She knew that Happy Jack gave Anne and Sammy tons of money. Mm -hmm. So now they're at a standoff. Oh, that was supposed to be a secret. It's all supposed to be a okay. secret. You know? Mm. And I think that what you're saying about the syphilis, like mm -hmm. nobody says this, yeah. but I do think that there's something about like, oh, Happy Jack arranges for men to come by their house and then he gives them a ton of money. I yeah. mean, I think that there is something in this yeah, right. that I don't think it would have been as big of a deal necessarily. It, maybe there wasn't some shit going down. Also, just for the record, it doesn't sound like he gives them a ton of money. They're still like in this one bedroom apartment. They're he not gives them enough in... money to live. I mean, I think uh -huh. he's giving Oh, because them... she can't work at all anymore. Yeah. Right. Sammy can't work. Uh, well, Sammy has never been able to, but also Anne basically She's can't. back to work. Oh, she's, she's back she, to work. Okay. When she got back, she got her job back. We okay. kind of talked okay. about that before. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, that did cost a lot of money. Yeah. And she does have to support two people on one right. income. You know? right. Regardless, at this point, the gloves were off. So all three women were incredibly vulnerable. They're single or estranged from their husband. They're living paycheck to paycheck in heavily religious Phoenix, Arizona, during an era where a social misstep or a hint of immoral behavior could ruin their lives, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So this stuff, even though it seems gossipy, is really heavy. It's really important to them surviving. You know, right. like these secrets. Yeah. yeah. So Ruth throws down first. She says, okay, now we're doing this, right? Like their mm -hmm. hackles are up and they're like, you really want to do this? She says, everyone at the clinic thinks that Anne and Sammy are lesbians mm -hmm. <laughs> and that she's sick of the de defending them. Uh -huh. So Ruth says, you know, what if I go ahead? I'm just going to tell all of our doctor bosses that you're a huge lesbian, mm. right? To mm. Anne. That's and, a that's a fucking sucker ass move. I know. Yeah. And Ruth had another really big secret. Uh -huh. So most of the doctors at the clinic were either disliked Anne or weren't crazy about Anne, probably in part because her pay was so much higher than the other nurses because mm -hmm. she was certified to run this 
like to be an x-ray technician. Yeah. So when Anne was recovering from her tuberculosis flare-up, remember with family uh-huh. in Oregon over the summer, mm-hmm. one of the doctors at the clinic trained a nurse to replace Anne without a pay raise, right? So mm-hmm. he didn't teach her everything, but he taught her how to push the buttons. So suddenly there's a cheaper Anne on the scene. Right. So when Anne returned from Oregon, that doctor told her, hey, I'm going to put you on unpaid leave for a month while the only doctor who advocated for Anne was on vacation. Mm. So he kind of pulled some shady stuff and wouldn't let her come back to work right away until the other doctor returned. So, you know, this guy's a shady doctor. (laughs) Anyway, Anne Uh was really mad Mm -hmm. and she wanted to go nuclear on this clinic. So one night when Ruth was closing up the clinic, Anne met her there. And she goes inside the closed-up clinic, and she walks straight to the x-ray machine. And she goes and she sets the voltage up as high as it will go. So it would severely burn the next patient. Oh, that's so to make the other nurse lady look incompetent? Yeah, because she's like, he doesn't, they don't know. She's like, I do know. You can't just be like, push this button. Like, she doesn't know how to recalibrate the machine. That's sabotage, man. So did someone get hurt? So Ruth... This is the only person who maybe would have said anything about that. And mm-hmm. Ruth, in her deposition, didn't say if anything happened. Mm-hmm. But in this room that night, she's like, I'm going to also snitch on you about this x-ray thing. She goes, I can snitch on you on that. And yeah. that would be a really big deal. Yeah. So she goes, I, so we don't know if anyone was hurt, but she says, I'm going to, I'll out you for messing with the machine. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And in turn, tells Ruth, if you breathe a word of any of this, I'll out you to everyone for having an affair with Jack. And then I'll tell Jack that you introduced him to a woman with syphilis. (laughs) Hell hath no fury. And to really be clear, in that social era, during the Great Depression, when work was so hard to come by, Mm -hmm. both women were threatening like straight up social and financial ruin. Right, starvation. Like homelessness level, losing everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ruth said at this point, she left the tiny cramped bedroom and walked into the kitchen to get some air and release some of the tension. And she said when she turned back to the bedroom, Sammy had snapped. Perhaps the most vulnerable of them all, pale, bedridden Sammy, Mm -hmm. who had been silent this whole time, was standing in the doorway of the kitchen pointing a twenty-five caliber pistol at Ruth. Yeah. Now, Dr. Judd, was actually the one who had bought the pistol. Dr. Judd, Ruth's husband, had bought the pistol for Ruth for protection because he wasn't going to be with her in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And Ruth had brought it with her to the girl's house when Anne was out of town Mm -hmm. and Ruth was living there. Yeah. But after Ruth lived, like moved out of the duplex and into her own apartment, she actually left the gun with the girls. Hmm. So the girls were the ones who were in possession of the gun. Okay. Is it can did anyone else back that up, or that's just what Ruth says? Like, that's oh, it's my her. gun, I own it, but it's actually been here for months. Right. This is recording to okay. Ruth. Nobody can. I mean, it's a lot of this stuff yeah. is just the police definitely didn't do any of right. the work. Well, I guess I th- was thinking maybe someone like Jack could corroborate some of that. So story. could Doctor Judd if right. anybody asked them. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe they were able to corroborate it later. Okay, but. I don't think that she would say something like that if it wasn't, if she didn't think people would back her up. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Dr. Judd could lie, so who knows? But I mean, yeah, it's just it's just a question behind this major thing of did she bring a gun to the house that night? Well, and that's the thing that 
to be fair, that's the thing investigators should have figured out already. Right. They totally. should have of course. who yeah. is the gun registered yeah, to. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? They have the gun. Yeah. So why is it... Whose fingerprints are on right, it? Right, exactly. There's no... Were the girls actually killed by a twenty caliber? Yeah, right. You know, like they hadn't done any of that right, work. Right, 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 right. So Ruth said she turned around, she sees Sammy pointing this gun at her, and she gets this shot of adrenaline. So she grabs the barrel of the gun, not the handle, but mm-hmm. just the barrel, and in one hand and then on the other hand she just grabs a nearby bread knife and sammy got off her first shot right away shooting ruth through the hand Mm -hmm. at this moment ruth then goes to stab sammy in the neck with the bread knife but the knife was so blunt and so flimsy it basically nicked Sammy and then folded in half. So as she stabbed at the the blade, just <laughs> yeah, folded. Some cheap ass knife, right. and that's that cut on the neck that wasn't ever brought up in the trial, right? Okay, but it is in the coroner's report. Mm-hmm. So Sam, the women drop to the floor. They're wrestling over the gun, and during the fight, Sammy was shot through the like shoulder chest area. Mm-hmm. Now this wound wasn't fatal, but after Sammy was shot. Anne started screaming, shoot her over and over again. And she grabbed an ironing board and was smashing the ironing board over Ruth's head as the girls were wrestling. Mm -hmm. Now, Ruth said while she was on the floor, she shot the gun blindly about five times and passed out. Mm -hmm. And when she woke up, she was lying on the kitchen floor between the bodies of Sammy and Anne. And both women were dead, being shot in the head. So horrified... Ruth ran back to her apartment, briefly catching an out-of-service streetcar. So she did jump Mm -hmm. on a car, and he kind of gave her a ride a couple blocks, and she jumped off. Mm -hmm. Ruth's plan was to call her husband in L.A. from a payphone and then use her last $2 to just run away. Mm -hmm. She was about to leave her apartment when Happy Jack pulled into her driveway, blasted drunk, and looking for a booty call. (laughs) So Jack comes inside and Ruth tells Jack everything. Yeah. And Jack didn't believe her. His drunk ass insisted they drive back to the girl's apartment so he could see for himself. Yeah. And when they walked into Sammy and Ann's kitchen, he was stunned. He walked over, gently picked up Sammy's body, and laid it on Ann's bed, which would explain why there's no blood on Sam, but Sam's part of the room, underneath. but there's some blood on yeah. the on the floor around the bed. Yeah, Anne's bed. Yeah. Furious, Jack forces Ruth to clean up the blood while he tried to figure out what to do. But Ruth couldn't mop properly with her shot hand. Yeah, she's injured, so she started crying, and Jack ended up taking over the cleanup, and she sat down. So this is a quote from the deposition. Quote, he said, you better let Dr. Brown treat your hand. And I told him I didn't want him to do it. A long time before, he, meaning Jack, told me that he had plenty on Dr. Brown. He told me he had enough on Dr. Brown to hang him. So, Well, like he knew Dr. Brown's dirty secrets? Yeah. We haven't heard of Dr. Brown. No, okay. this is like the first time. All he's okay. saying is like, I want you to go to Dr. Brown. She's like, I don't want to go to anybody who's going to know what's going on. It's like, Oh, and he's man. saying like, no, I'll take you here because he will not. He won't tell on you. If he does, then I'll tell on him. Right, exactly. Okay, okay. So Jack's cleaning up the blood and he starts to formulate a plan. But Ruth at this point is devolving into hysterics. Mm-hmm. So according to Ruth, 
Jack says, you know what? I'm going to put the bodies in a trunk. I know of a trunk that's in their storage space because mm-hmm. I helped them move it there. I'm going to bring it out, bring it upstairs, and we're going to get the bodies in the trunk. And then I'm going to drive it out to the desert and just drop it in the desert. But by now, Ruth is screaming uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. And afraid that she'd alert the neighbors, Jack said, listen, I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to drive you back to your apartment on Brill Street. His only instructions were Ruth were not to call the police, not to call her husband, and not to breathe a word to anyone. Mm-hmm. So he took back Ruth back to her apartment and terrified, she said she didn't sleep or call Dr. Brown. She didn't want to talk to him. She just wrapped her hand in a towel and waited for dawn. Ruth called into work the next day saying she'd be a little late, then late and then called pretending to be Anne mm-hmm. and called out for Anne's shift. So Ruth worked the first half of her Saturday shift in this daze, and around noon, she gets a call from Jack. And Jack's all, hey, man, sorry, sugar. Looks like I can't take care of this problem after all. Mm-hmm. The desert plan was a no-go. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, but did you see Dr. Brown? And Ruth, you know, she takes it in and she says, no, I didn't see Dr. Brown. I'm not going to see Dr. Brown. I'm going to get the hell out of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. She tells Jack... Her plan was to take the Saturday night train that night Mm -hmm. to Los Angeles and have her husband take out the bullet himself. And Jack's listening to her. He says, you know, that's that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. You know, I got an idea. Why don't you take the trunk with you to L.A.? (laughs) So Ruth says, you know, absolutely not. And Jack, you know, says, well, just think about it. Why don't you meet me at the girls duplex tonight after you get off work? So Ruth gets off work and she heads over to the duplex in the evening. Sun's down, but all the lights were off in the duplex and Jack wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So she said she stood on the front porch and as she's waiting, she realizes that Jack's gray Packard was slowly circling the block over and over and over again. So she's standing there in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. right? And after about an hour of this nonsense, she thinks, okay, well, maybe Jack is going to kill me and he's trying to think it over. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. whatever's going to happen, I'm going to go inside and wait where it's cooler. So she goes inside. <laughs> the got to get out of this Phoenix heat. So she walks inside and Jack follows her into the house, mm-hmm. right? And the two stand in this dark living room in front of a massive trunk. And the first thing Jack said was that he had to do an operation on Sammy. So Ruth told the deposition crew that was assembled, she said that when Jack got drunk, he'd often use this persona called Dr. Buckley from Buckeye. So, he- Oh my God, he has a secret identity of a murderous chop you up doctor? So he, no, but he would talk like a doctor, uh-huh. use like random hospital jargon, and he would basically use the character to pick up nurses. And he was so good at being Dr. Buckley from Buckeye that once he was able to drunkenly sneak into the Good Samaritan Hospital and get away with like pretending to be a doctor and picking up on nurses. Oh my God. So anyway, (laughs) when Jack mentioned this operation, Ruth thought either Dr. Brown helped him Uh or maybe like drunk 
Jack <laughs> pretending to be the doctor was like saying these words like he's drunk yeah, a yeah. lot, you know. So she's uh-huh. like, "Is he drunk now? Yeah, yeah. Who's doing the operation?" She's like, "Whatever." I don't. He didn't say mm-hmm. anybody helped him, but he's not a doctor. But sometimes yeah. he pretends to be a doctor and says, "Like I'm going to do an operation," you know. <laughs> but as a hunter. Mm. Jack was used to butchering deer mm. and he had some point worked in a butcher's, so- a butcher's shop. Yeah. So he did know his way around anatomy. Um, okay. So it could have been him. So there's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's vague. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, all she says is Jack gave Ruth instructions to move the trunk to the Phoenix train depot that night on Saturday night. Right. He said, you're going to take the late Saturday night train and meet up with a man in L.A., who will just take the trunk and disappear. So Ruth had $2 to her name, right? Mm -hmm. And Jack told her, you know, hey, I don't have any cash on me, but I'll meet up with you later later tonight at the train station with the cash, and I'll pay for all your expenses. Okay. So she says, fine, and he leaves. After Jack leaves, Ruth follows his instructions she calls the place that he said to call call the lightning delivery service to right. take the trunk to the train station and they show up and they say no train station is gonna uh, this is way too heavy the movers uh-huh. arrive they found mm. Ruth sitting alone in this right. dark living room next to a huge trunk it takes three men to lift the trunk to the doorway and that's when they gave her the life changing news the trunk's too heavy it's too heavy to ship his luggage on the train and they refuse to deliver it to the station mm-hmm. So Ruth sits there in silence for a very long time. She finally asks him to deliver the trunk to her nearby Brill Street apartment. Now, this lateral move to get the trunk to her apartment, because she didn't know what else to do, it cost her half her money. Yeah. And it gave her zero solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, the men do it anyway. <laughs> well, it also made it even worse. Now, she has the dead bodies in her, her house. In her house, right? Yeah. It's worse than a lateral move. Right, 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 right. So they start lifting the trunk. Nobody notices the fluid leaking out of the trunk and Mm -hmm. into the darkened doorway. Mm -hmm. But police do find that later. Mm -hmm. So now, with the trunk stuffed with the corpses of her best friends, sitting in her living room, Ruth said she had no choice but to wait for Jack to realize something went wrong and come to her apartment, right? Jack's supposed to be waiting for her at the train station. But it never happens. She said Jack never came looking for her. He never called. Mm-hmm. He didn't answer his office phone. Mm-hmm. And Ruth was too afraid to call his house in case his wife answered. So she just hasn't, she can't do anything. In the end, later, not in this deposition, but later, during this whole trial process, mm-hmm. Ruth actually admits that she opened the trunk and separated the pieces of Sammy's body between the smaller trunk that she owned and an old ratty suitcase to yeah. try to distribute the weight differently. Right. Mm-hmm. She then had her landlord drive her to the train station the following afternoon, and then she took the two leaky trunks to L.A. on the Sunday evening train, yeah. praying that Happy Jack's mystery man would be there to meet her. So that's why she stuck around the train station in that a bathroom annoying the lady for so many hours so when she arrived in la her wounded hand wrapped in a towel she waited at the train station for yeah. hours yeah, for jack's yeah. contact and when it was clear that the cavalry wasn't coming ruth stashed the suitcase containing sammy's body parts behind the door of the lady's restroom and used the very last of her money to take a streetcar to the university of southern california to find her brother burton 
When she found Burton on campus, she told him nothing about the murders. Confused, he drove her to the train station to pick up her trunks. Mm -hmm. When they got there, they found the trunks had been tagged for inspection. So railroad inspectors led the pair to the stinking, leaking trunks and demanded Ruth open them with a luggage key. Burton watched as his sister calmly claimed the bleeding trunks contained her clothes and books from Phoenix. (laughs) When that didn't work, Burton stayed silent. Well, Ruth claimed she didn't have the key and she would have to retrieve it from her husband. He followed Ruth out of the station and they got in the car. When Ruth made no indication she was headed to retrieve a luggage key from her husband and when she refused to answer any of Burton's questions, he handed her $5 in cash and dropped her off in downtown LA. <laughs> like, good luck, sister. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't really solve any problems for your siblings, let alone all of them. Yeah, so right. that's the story. Okay. As Ruth tells it. <sighs> so we're going to get back to the prosecution, all the stuff that's happening, the appeals, what's going on, right? Okay, all right. So we all know at this point, Ruth's first legal team did her dirty, right? Uh-huh. And Ruth now tells the people she's doing the deposition with, she says she gave that exact same statement, which she mm-hmm. just said, to her two attorneys just weeks after her arrest. Mm-hmm. And they passed her statement to the judge presiding, presiding over her trial. Mm-hmm. She said she was told by her legal team that Judge Speakerman the man presiding over the trial, promised that the prosecution would subpoena Jack and get him to confirm everything she said on the witness stand. Mm -hmm. But Happy Jack was never called to testify. Tell me we're going to get into Happy Jack on part three of this thing, right? Not only that, after her defense team decided to like go with an insanity defense, they instructed Ruth, right, not to tell anybody her story. They also promised her that she would be able to take the stand and testify on her own behalf. And she believed them, waiting every single day of the trial up until closing arguments, thinking today is going to be the day. Oh, that's brutal. And after the trial and the subsequent verdict, the guilty verdict, Ruth demanded to tell her story. She wrote everything down, like she just told the people in the deposition. And she gave it to one of her lawyers. And that lawyer said, oh, I took it to the judge and I read it out loud to the judge. Now, in retrospect, uh-huh. everybody working in this case is like that pretty much for sure. It never happened. Uh huh. Yeah. So there she was on death row with Jack Halloran walking around Phoenix scot free. Now, Ruth knew Jack had nothing to do with the actual killings, but she felt he was the only one who can confirm there was a huge fight. She didn't kill the girls in cold blood while right. they were sleeping. Right, right. And not only that, but ultimately, he was the one who actually destroyed most of the evidence that would prove her innocent. He got rid of the mattresses. Which, why the hell did he do any of that? I don't know. Why? He was, what, he was just drunk. Dr. Buckley from Buckeye is used to just things working out. If I'm cheating on you, Muriel, and my new girlfriend is like, oh my God, I killed those other two girls that you totally know and are probably hooking up with or whatever, and went over there, and she had done that, I'd been like, all right, um, 911. I would, I would just be like, hey, Muriel, I'm so sorry. I'm, I was cheating on you. I'm not shopping up a body well, to protect whatever the hell you think your life is. That's why uh-huh. I'm not making this claim, but that's why a lot of people in this book uh-huh. and throughout history have felt like Jack was cons- complicit. That's the only reason why you would. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're going to do something to protect yourself. Yeah. He's, the only reason why, I mean, to me, I can't think of another reason why you'd go along with that, you know, 
Yeah. Unless he was just been a psycho this whole time. And or yeah, he was drunk and then started to do it and was like, what am I doing? Yeah, I can't right. lift this trunk. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> okay, good. But he definitely got like, you know, I, according to Ruth, yeah. these things happened. And what we know, right, is that she didn't have a car. So some of the things that were missing out of the apartment don't make any sense. And we know the blood evidence doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The other thing that didn't make any sense is Sammy's dismemberment. So we're mm-hmm. going to revisit that for a second. So even though Ruth wasn't charged with Sammy's murder, her dismemberment had remained this puzzle. Most people involved in the case had serious doubts about whether or not Ruth was capable of cutting up Sammy's body in the manner in which it was found without any help. Mm-hmm. So like we said before, the body was hemisected at the waist, just like the black dahlia, with the torso separated from the legs neatly between two vertebrae in the spine. Mm-hmm. And then her knees were also neatly severed at the joint, requiring skill and knowledge of anatomy. And, you know, it didn't have to be a doctor, but it would be really difficult for someone without any prior knowledge to actually do any of these surgeries, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Retired Maricopa County medical examiner Heinz Karnitschnig said, quote, the person seems to know what he or she was doing regarding the body. Being able to hemisect the body, going through the spine, cutting through two vertebrae is not the easiest thing to do. The knee joints were disarticulated without some skill, either as a doctor or as an operating room technician or as a butcher, it would not be all that easy to do. Mm -hmm. It's not a rage case where people get really butchered. This is utilitarian stuff. I think it's a straightforward case of dismemberment for the ease of packing. Mm Mm-hmm. It takes somebody with skill to do. And what about all the surgical tools that were found in the trunk with the bodies? So that's actually kind of interesting. What Ruth said is that the surgical equipment that was like found in the yeah. trunk with the bodies was a small, like a tiny kit that her husband had left. Oh. And she brought it with her to potentially help with getting the bullet out of her hand. Oh, so they were not whatever was used to cut up sammy no she said if you if they mm-hmm. they the prosecution mentioned surgical instruments mm. but they didn't mention that the knife in the surgical kit was like the size of two dimes taped together it was right like a tiny little like yeah, utilitarian yeah. scalpel so did anyone have any idea what they did use to dissect her like that you know all I know is that it had to be a very long, thin knife. It had mm-hmm. to be, they had to have equipment to do it. Right. You know, it couldn't have been with this like little scalpel. But thing. they didn't find that. They no. didn't, they never said this. Okay. And they uh. probably weren't looking for it because they said we found the surgical equipment. Yeah. Right. Mm. So all this to say is that it supports the idea that Ruth had help, right? Mm-hmm. And if it could be proven that Ruth had help, it basically throws the whole prosecution's case out the window and would force the state to give Ruth at least a new trial, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And here's another little tidbit. Dr. Charles Brown, Uh you know, the man that Jack tried to get to treat Ruth. The supposedly dirty dirty doctor. Right. Uh He showed up at the prison where Ruth was being held after her conviction three sheets to the wind, just drunk as hell, waving his hat around and screaming that he was the only person alive who knew the truth about the case. Mm. And a few days later, yeah. he was dead. <gasps> From what? So Is that part three? 
<laughs> Who killed him? Stop. So Colonel McClintock was this guy. He's like a famous Arizona journalist. Uh-huh. He wrote a letter after Brown's death on June 6th, 1932 to the managing editor of the New York Times or the LA Times. So they would swap information sometimes. Uh-huh. So he wrote him a letter and the letter said, you know, hey, just a heads up, this guy, Dr. Brown, that has been, his name has been thrown around a little bit. He died of a heart attack in Phoenix while clutching a butcher's knife. And the rumor around Phoenix was that Dr. Brown had done the dissection job on Sammy. And there was a little bit of like, did he die naturally, right? Uh Uh-huh. The colonel also wrote for the past like few months, like almost a year since um, the girls' bodies were found, Brown's life had really publicly fallen apart. That basically after the bodies were found, he spent the next like eight months or so just tweaked out on drugs and booze, wandering yeah. around Phoenix being a maniac. Okay, so those okay. are all, all the things, right? So armed uh-huh. with this full deposition, Ruth's defense team was able to request a grand jury hearing. So they get a bunch of people together to see if they can indict Jack Halloran for accessory to murder. Mm. So they're trying to see if they can gather enough evidence. Yeah. So in this grand jury hearing, all this evidence is presented along with this deposition and Ruth is an excellent witness and just recounts everything, you know, to the letter. She Mm -hmm. tells the same consistent story and the jury votes to indict Happy Jack for accessory to murder and to recommend that Ruth's sentence be commuted to life in prison. Good. On December 30th, 1932, we have this preliminary trial for Jack Halloran, right? Uh-huh. So that basically is going, he's indicted. Yes. And now they're determining whether or not they're going to, you know. Put him on him. trial. Yeah, put him on trial. Right. So at this preliminary trial, Jack is smug and confident. Now, Ruth was a great witness at the grand jury hearing, but at Jack's preliminary hearing or trial, she was a hot mess. Seeing Jack riled her up and she was at the end of her rope. She was basically hysterical. Mm. She screamed. She cried. She collapsed several times. She was really incoherent. Her train of thought really wandered around. She couldn't clearly or plainly tell her version of what happened that night. And Jack was a huge bitch the whole time. (laughs) He was like grinning while Ruth was testifying uh-huh. as if she's crazy and uh-huh. doing that thing where you shake your head in disbelief at every yeah. time she says anything, laughing out loud whenever she says anything. Ugh. And every time he did something like that, Ruth would lose her mind. Uh, so yeah. like she screamed directly in Jack's face, quote, you don't care what happened to Sammy, that she's dead and that Anne's dead and that I'm going to die. You sit there and laugh. You still play around. I hope you suffer everything Anne's mother has suffered and my mother and Sammy's mother has suffered. Like she's just, Damn. she's so, I mean, in, in the book, it yeah. feels a little bit like after all this time, yeah. people are finally hearing her version. Yeah. And so what's coming out is her version, but also all of her grievances. Yeah. So yeah, she'll yeah. start being like, and she'll just, you know, start wandering around and talking about how she's mad at her old attorneys. And yeah. Jack yeah, did this yeah, other yeah. thing this one time, but she's not sticking to the story. Right. Oh my God. Um, that is kind of scary to me. Yeah. It's kind of con- 
like disconcerting. And also since we started recording, it's gotten dark outside and all of our lights are off. So your face is just illuminated by the screen of your <laughs> the you know, script that you're reading off of. You're you just, also like kind of cowering in the corner. You just look like a little demented witch just over <laughs> a, a fire out in the woods. Oh, just. I'll show you witch. <laughs> all right. So yeah. ultimately... This is what went down. I'm not going to go point by point. Yeah. Basically, Happy Jack's lawyer argued that if Ruth's assertion was that she killed in self-defense, then technically there was no crime for Jack to be an accessory of, right? Mm -hmm. Jack couldn't be convicted of being an accessory to murder if there was no murder. It was a self-defense, mm. right? Mm. So like big brain energy. Right? Okay, all right. And yeah. that argument worked. Uh -huh. The presiding judge told Ruth and her defense team that they successfully argued that Ruth killed in self-defense. So. Happy Jack has nothing to, to the, worry about. The murder charge, the accessory to murder charges against Happy Jack had to be dropped. Now Jack walked away completely free of charges and Ruth went back to death row because her conviction was mm -hmm. still upheld. Whatever happened to Jack's trial. Oh, had nothing to do with it. It doesn't exonerate her. Oh, weird. It was just a trial to see whether or not they were going to charge I thought him. you said they got, they something happened where they The commuted. grand jury recommended that her sentence oh, be commuted, but the grand jury was there to indict Jack. But hold on, time out. Okay, I get that it was self-defense or whatever, but he did try to cover up the murder afterward. But there's... She's... They, they're... I get it. I guess it's crazy, not technically right? murder. I mean, you really are like, are you kidding me? Yeah. They're huh, just saying right. you can't clean up a murder if there was no murder. <laughs> Seems like it should be illegal to cut up a girl. Yeah, but he didn't say that he cut her up. Nobody proved that. Right. Nobody knows who did it. All right. So Jack's gone, right? He's chilling, freewheeling, right? Mm -hmm. And Ruth's back on death row. But there's hope, right? It Is looks there? like she could potentially be granted a full pardon or at least paroled mm -hmm. based on the recommendation of the grand jury okay and the results of jack's preliminary trial mm -hmm. you know and just as a side note jack did not get off consequence free jack repu jack's reputation at least was tanked which mm -hmm. makes me extremely satisfied <laughs> okay great his name was actually weirdly erased from the history of the trial like uh -huh. moving forward he was always referred to as an alias in newspapers and books mm -hmm. and his indictment and preliminary trial records were literally ripped out of the public records book in the Phoenix courthouse. And later they could only be found as a copy in the Arizona state records. So somebody's actively erasing. Right. Well, he definitely had some powerful friends. Right. And there's also the theory that it may not have been to protect him, but rather mm -hmm. to erase him and his connections to the Phoenix elite. Oh, you know, so who's he's not the one who brought all the guys over to Sam and uh, Sammy and Ann's house. Right, right. Yeah. Just saying. No, that makes sense. It's just a theory. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he didn't get a lot out of it. Yeah. You know, he lost his business. Mm. You know, he did not remain like a, a big player in the scene. Totally. So in 1933, things were looking good for Ruth, right? A third of the state legislature 
of Arizona took up her cause. They signed a petition for her release and sent it to the parole board. A group of 34 Phoenix area ministers and priests, mixed Protestant and Catholic, which was a really big deal in those days, Mm -hmm. they also put a petition together on her behalf. So people were coming out of the woodwork to be like, how can she be declared guilty in Jack Halloran's preliminary trial and still be a few weeks away from being hung? Right. At her parole board hearing, Ruth's supporters felt that the board had two choices. Either follow the lead of the grand jury and Judge Niles, who presided over Jack's preliminary hearing and declared Jack innocent. It's like either follow their lead. Right. Which means she acted in self-defense. Right. And commute her death sentence. Right. Or postpone Ruth's death sentence until she could be tried for the death of Hedvig Samuelson and then could have a fresh trial to claim Mm -hmm, self-defense. Her supporters demanded, quote, if a trial jury on the Samuelson charge find that Mrs. Judd acted in self-defense and their verdict is not guilty, then a full pardon should be issued on the Leroy charge. Right? That makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So their idea is like basically... Sammy's actually the best example of the struggle in the kitchen. Ruth's right, yeah, of Ruth's claim to self-defense. Right, exactly. Right, right. So do a trial based on Sammy, right. and then we'll talk about it. According to Jana Bombersbach, the author of the book we read, quote, in March 1933, the Arizona Board of Pardons and Paroles was unmoved by the grand jury. It was unmoved by Judge Niles' ruling. It was unmoved by the lawmakers. It was unmoved by the impressive list of clergymen. It was unmoved by the more than 3,000 letters from across the nation begging for mercy. They didn't care about the shady mayor juror who convinced the jury to convict Ruth in a make-or-talk scheme, mm-hmm. s- saying simply they just didn't believe like that ever went down. They mm-hmm. said all these jurors came forward and said, this is what happened. And they said, you're lying. <laughs> yeah, okay. You just regret sentencing her to death. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they voted to uphold the death sentence. Damn. All they did was change Ruth's hanging date slightly to avoid murdering her on Good Friday. <laughs> oh, that's so Ruth's that's kind. new execution date was set for just a few weeks later on April 21st, 1933. Mm-hmm. By now, Ruth's aging parents were broke and homeless, living in Florence, Arizona to be near their only daughter. Oh. And with all her options exhausted, Ruth was left in a prison cell waiting to die. And next week, you'll get the insane story of Ruth and her seven escapes from prison. Oh, my God. Are you joking? This bitch escaped seven times? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. That's going to be a good part three, Muriel. Oh, my God. I was not expecting that. (laughs) Oh, little innocent Ruthie, huh? (laughs) Shit. All right. Give this, give your, uh, (laughs) give your, whatever it's called. Your, what's the book you read? What's the resources? It's called The The Trunk Murderess by Jana Bombersbach. All right. Well, I am very curious to see if she ends up going to death row, if she ends up eventually escaping forever. You know, you said seven attempts, but maybe that last time it actually worked. (sighs) Okay, great. And it's dark outside now. <laughs> you have 
You're the best. <laughs> okay. So we're done recording for the day, but part three is coming out next Wednesday. If you don't want to wait for that, go to Patreon, sign up for Muriel's Murders and get part three right now. Otherwise, that's coming next Wednesday. <sighs> All right. Now it's time for me to escape. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our dark-ass living room. <laughs> to help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. We draw and animate little bonus content for Muriel's Murders, which populates our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open, and you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. If you are into NFTs, check out the link in the show notes of this episode. Plus, we got links to t-shirts, and all sales directly support our podcasting efforts. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. Listen, dudes, it really does help us grow. Uh, so if you're enjoying it, just hit us up with some five stars. You can also do that on Spotify now, which is sick. Hell yeah. Our music uh, is by Mario Castellini. Speaking of sick, find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, check out our non-murder podcast, Hell in Your 30s, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it. Let's go take an edible, man. <laughs> I'm Mark David Christensen. I'm Kate Thompson, and together we host Ah Crap, a Hellboy podcast. The show dedicated to the world of the half-demon hero created by Mike Mignola and published by Dark Horse Comics. Our show returns this February 16th as we continue every Wednesday to make our way through the pages of Hellboy, BPRD, Witchfinder, and many more related comic book titles. Plus, we discuss the various Hellboy live-action and animated films, novels, and other media adaptations. And occasionally, we're joined by various guests that share our passion. Previous guests include Tad Stones, the creator of Darkwing Duck and Hellboy Animated, Joshua Dysart, writer of BPRD's 1946, Hector Navarro from Nerdist Book Club and just a big old fan, Jonathan Marks Beravecchia, comic book artist and also friend of the podcast, Cody Ziegler, writer of Amazing Spider-Man and other Marvel comic books, and many more guests. So tune in. February 16th and every Wednesday to All Crap, a Hellboy podcast on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.